Let's go before the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, moms. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the influence that they've had in our lives uh, in so many ways. And Lord, just the love that you put in their hearts for us. And I appreciate my mom. I appreciate my wife so very much and uh, the role she is playing in the raising of our kids. And Lord, I continue to bless her even today over in Kenya. And Father, uh, as we look into your word, we want to have hearts that are prepared to receive. Lord, we think of Asa today, Lord, a good and a godly man. Lord, uh, Scripture says he did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And, and yet he had lessons that he needed to learn, Lord, uh, sort of to keep on uh, in the faith. And Father, that's, uh, that's where we are. So this is a valuable text for us today. Father, uh, no matter where we're at in our walk with you, Lord, we desire to go deeper. We desire to understand you more. Lord, we desire to walk in integrity and uh, in the knowledge of you that you might be glorified. And so we ask <clears throat> that you would use your word to teach us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Second Chronicles. If you haven't been with us, we've been making our way looking at all of these many kings that have ruled over the nation. And today we come to the third king of Judah. Actually, this is part two of a study on the life of the man named Asa. The first of the kings that it was said of him that he was good, that he did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. All the other kings of Judah that came before him, unfortunately it said they did evil. Uh, and they did not seek the ways of the Lord. But today we come to Asa, a man that is referred to as a reformer king. And for his reform efforts, to reform spiritually, to reform morally, a nation that knew the Lord but had drifted. Fifty years is a long time. And you could be knowing the Lord today, five years from now is a long time. And you could be in a completely different place with the Lord. And so the nation of Judah, in this 50-year period of time that went by, uh, had drifted. And Asa becomes the king. And as we said last week, he, he looked to do what he could do. And within his sphere of influence, how can I make an impact? What changes can I introduce into our nation? And so today, as we continue to look at him, we're going to be reminded of the event we read last week, which was that after all of these great reforms and 10 years of being committed to the Lord, that an enemy nation came against him. We saw that that was the leader of Ethiopia, it doesn't say he's a king, but the leader of Ethiopia, a man by the name of Zerah, comes, amasses an army of one million people to come against the nation of Israel, or excuse me, of the kingdom of Judah, and here comes out this king, Asa. And it says in chapter 14, verse 11, O Lord, Asa cries, O Lord, there's none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God. We rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. And the scripture says that the Lord heard that desperate cry of Asa, and he delivered the nation of Israel. And again, that promise where they're going to come at you one way, but they'll flee seven ways, that that proved itself to be true in this example here with Asa. Now that brings us to where we left off. And there's this amazing victory that takes place. Asa returns, all of the people, the soldiers, some 500,000 of them, I think it says 580,000, they return, they're glorying in the Lord, and Asa is then encountered by a prophet. And the prophet, we read in chapter 15, verse 2, will warn Asa. Notice it says, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, 
he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And as we've said in the past, we are never more vulnerable than when we are fresh off of victory. And so here's Asa, great king, doing amazing reforms. Over a 15-year period of time, the nation is greatly blessed. You would expect the prophet would come and say, Asa, keep on, buddy. You're doing great. Love you. The people love you. God loves you. He's so grateful for all the mighty things you're doing and the, the way that you're trusting in him. Just keep on doing what you're doing. But that's not what this prophet comes and brings to Asa. Rather, he comes and he brings him a warning. Because the prophet knows what the Lord knows in our lives is that we are never more vulnerable than when we are fresh off of victory. You're never more vulnerable in your walk with Christ than when you're doing super in your walk with Christ. And you're getting up and you're having your quiet times and you're treating people the way that you should be treating them and you're going to your church and you're doing this and you're doing that. That's when we're most vulnerable. And the reason is, is because something happens in our heart where we're no longer dependent on God. But we begin to trust in ourselves. I could take a morning off. You know, I could take an extra glance over at that particular thing. I can go to that particular place where I never would have gone before because I'm doing fine. I'm strong. I'm not going to fall. We'll take heed and be careful. God never warns us. Again, I don't know if this is good English, but God never warns us for no particular reason. He knows what he's doing. He sees the end just as he sees the beginning, and he knows what things we need to be on our guard against. And so he sends Azariah. I think I said Hananiah earlier. He sends Azariah to Asa, and he issues him a warning. And it says the warning essentially is, Look, you're with God now. You just need to be sure that you remain with God. And so let's look at actually at verse 19 of chapter 15, the last verse of the previous chapter. And it says, And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. Now we read in verse 10 of chapter 15 that the war with Zerah of Ethiopia took place, it says there, in the 15th year. So it says they were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year. And so putting that together with verse 19, speaking of the 35th year, we're talking about a period of 20 years that have gone by. 20 years that the nation was able to enjoy peace. 20 years from the day of the warning. Were you warned of something 20 years ago? I came to Christ about 24, 25 years ago. And during those first years of walking with the Lord, mentors and friends and just simply the word of God and sermons that I heard, I received all sorts of warnings, lessons that God taught me. Do these things and you can remain in me. Walk in this way. You'll keep yourself from trouble. Lessons I've learned many, many years ago. But lessons I need to continue to put into practice even to these days to continue to keep myself in the Lord. And so it says, as we continue, chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah, and he built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or to come in to Asa, the king of Judah. Now while Asa was the king of Judah, he was king for 41 years. And while he was king, there were six different kings that reigned for differing amounts of times in the northern kingdom. Asa was the king of the southern kingdom. The longest of those kings was a man by the name of King Baasha. So I think we have a couple slides here. Slide 9 and 10. Jeannie, do we have that? Slide 9. You back there for me, Jeannie? There, that's not the one I wanted. I'm sorry. The, the one with the uh, timeline of the kings. 
not on there? Well, anyway, it was a really good slide. You would have loved it. Um, and essentially, it, it's just showing you that you have one man as king for 41 years, and these six kings that, that kind of pile up one after the other, the longest of which was Basha, or Baasha. And so you had these two kings basically ruling concurrently with one another for a period of almost 25 years. And it tells us in verse 1, as we read, that Baasha built the city of Ramah. And that was located, Ramah is located just six miles north of Jerusalem. Six miles is not far. And he is building this fortified city there. For what purpose? Guess. He's planning an attack probably, right? And so uh, our friend here, uh, what's this fellow? The king, King Asa, is concerned about this. Ramah was the last city that you would go through. If you were coming from the north to get into Jerusalem, you follow the path, the roads, not lots and lots of highways, one, a couple of key roads. Ramah was the last city you would go through before making your way into Jerusalem. So we tried to show you another one here with the squiggly line, I hope. Any squiggly line ones there? There you go. And that's basically the pathway that you would take to get from that city to the other. And so he's building this. Who knows why? Maybe it's because he knew many, many people were migrating from the north into the south. We read verses like that. For instance, Second Chronicles 15.9, it says, As Asa gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who were residing with them, for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel. So perhaps the reason Baasha is building this walled city, if you will, is to keep the people in. And so he builds this wall. And certainly it's never a good idea, or it's never good when a nation has to build a fence to keep people in the nation. And he's building this fence maybe. Asa here, though, is fearful that he's planning an attack. And so he takes action. Now, in chapter 14, when Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against the nation of Judah, came out against Asa, Asa's response, as we read, was to cry out to the Lord. So again, you can see it there in verse 11. He relied upon the Lord. Notice his words, O Lord, we rely on you. Here now, in this instance, he doesn't rely upon God but he relies upon the king of Syria. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. It says, And then Asa took silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending you to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. So instead of relying upon the Lord as he had done in the past, he now is relying upon another king or a man. And the person he chooses to is this fellow Ben-Hadad. Now we don't know why. We don't know what changed over these last 20 years. But clearly something changed. Perhaps it was because when Zerah came, that was a million men. I need God when a million men are coming against me. This is just one fortified city. I can use my own strategies and plans. So perhaps Asa was suffering from the tendency that many of us have, only calling upon God for the big things. Maybe it was because Baasha was familiar. He had been dealing with Baasha for 24 years. His father had dealt with Baasha. I mean, you know, so maybe this is you know, just some new, or this is not something new. It's just the norm. I'll just use some of the proven strategies and victories that have either worked for me or worked for other people in the past, and I'll implement that. Perhaps that's the reason. But whatever the reason is, something has occurred during these last 20 years, this period of time, 
which has caused Asa to drift in his dependence upon the Lord. And so in this instance, it's this instance, I should say, that the prophet Azariah had warned Asa of 20 years earlier. Remember, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said, Hear me, Asa, the Lord is with you while you're with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And in this case, rather than seeking the Lord, Asa seeks, in this instance, the king of Syria. Rather than relying upon the Lord, there's that word, as he did in the instance with the Ethiopian, Asa relies upon a foreign king. Rather than crying out to God for help, he cries out to this man, Ben-Hadad. Now it's interesting, the name Ben-Hadad means the son of Hadad. Ben is the son of. So it's the son of Hadad, and Hadad was the name of the foreign deity of the people of Syria. And archaeologically, they have found inscriptions of his names and pictures or carvings uh, and things like that of this particular fellow. And essentially, Asa, the king of Judah, is calling to the son of a foreign god and pleading to him for help instead of calling out to the one true God as he had done in the past. Asa was warned to seek the Lord. And I'm sure like many of us, he paid initial hard attention to it. All right, God, I will do that. You tell me to do that. Lessons I've learned 20-some years ago. I did them with great intensity. You probably have as well. But then gradually we drift a little bit. A little bit further and further away, thinking to ourselves, you know what, I'm strong enough for this. It was a time in my life I wasn't, but I'm strong enough for this. I can handle that. I don't need to worry about that thing happening to me. There was a time when I needed to be on my guard, but not so much anymore. Well, remember, God never warns us without a particular reason. He knows what's going to come our way, even if it's 20 years into the future. He knows. And so we bring circumstances and lessons and people into our lives to protect us, to prepare us. Sadly, after an extended period of time, Asa forgot those warnings and he failed to heed them. Let's look on to verse 4. It says, And Benadad listened to King Asa, and he sent the commanders of his army against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ajan and Dan and Abel-Maim and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he let his work cease. And so, as the king of the nation of the north, uh, Benadad, to the north of even of Israel, Benadad comes and he begins to con- or attack all of these cities that are located there and regions. He, it talks about Dan and Aijan and Abel Maim, and it talks about the store cities in the territory of Naphtali. These are all northern cities. And so, this northern king is coming down and attacking all of these particular places. And finally, it brings. Uh, this fellow, I keep forgetting names, by Asha, it finally brings him to say, you know what, what good is it to have the city of Ramah if I have to lose 20 other cities in order to maintain it? And so he abandons the project, and he takes off. And verse 6 says, King Asa took all Judah, and they went to Ramah, and they took away the stones and the timber with which Baasha had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah, big city. You could take the stones and the timber from it and build two cities somewhere else. The plan worked. I've been painting this picture that it was a bad idea to go to Ben-Hadad, and yet you look at it, and the plan worked. He attacks, he hires someone to attack from the north, and it worked. 
Israel stopped building the fortified city that they were likely going to attack Jerusalem from. Asa, Asa, I should say, relied upon a foreign king, and the foreign king was able to deliver him. Now, here's an important point. Just because a plan works doesn't mean that God is in that plan. And just because a plan works at this time doesn't mean that it will, the solution will be a lasting one or that it will free us from its own problems that it is going to bring. And so young people, people that are still in school and testing, how glorious it was to take my last exam. I remember driving home, it was right around this time of year, driving home from Ryder University, and I was on Eggert's Crossing Road, which is probably about five minutes from Ryder, five minutes from my home, and realizing I am done. I never have to take another test again if I don't want to. And it was, it was wonderful. I, I delight in that truth. But young people, you might be temporarily, you might temporarily, I should say, be able to get away with cheating on a test or plagiarizing a paper. Today on the internet, you can get anything you want, it seems. Although teachers, we can get anything we want too by typing in key phrases that don't come from ninth grade students typically. And we find your paper, so don't worry. But you might temporarily be able to get away by cheating. But it always catches up with you. That's young people. Old people. Where are you, old people? Raise your hand. Old people. You, there's Al. Yes, we all agree. Uh, I'm just teasing. Uh, you likely can get that promotion at work by stabbing people in the back, by cheating and manipulating, doing those things necessary to kind of rise up in the system. But it will always catch up with you. It always does. And when we begin to rely on our own intellect or our own resources, our own strategies, our own smarts, we may have temporary success, but it will always catch up with us. And in the case of Asa, the reckoning is immediately. He doesn't even have time, really, to go with it. Look at verse 7. It says, At that time, Hanani, the seer, a different prophet, he came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. Hanani is essentially saying, not only would you have had victory over Baasha of the northern kingdom, you would have had victory over Syria as well. Now you're his slave. Now you owe him because he delivered you. And he reminds him of the time that they had that great victory in times past. When there was a million-man army that came against the nation of Judah, and God delivered them and gave them victory. And the same word is used there. Remember that word relied that we saw back in chapter 14? Rely means to put all of your weight upon. That's the word that is used in the Hebrew. To put all of your weight upon something. I fully trust that this thing is going to hold me. I was putting up a gutter at my house this week. And because I'm lazy, I didn't want to climb down the ladder to readjust it. So I, I tried to stay up on the roof and readjust the ladder from where I was, and that involved essentially doing things you shouldn't be doing from on top of the roof. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure the ladder was secure, that it was locked in place, but I don't want to go all the way down. And so I kind of tested it with my foot, and nothing happened. And so I tested it a little bit more, and nothing happened. And then I finally clung to the side of the house and got my whole body on it and slowly let go. And that slowly letting go, that's reliance. And fortunately, and this is a, a miracle, I'll tell you a miracle, it didn't fall. And then I climbed all the way down, and it fell. The whole thing, shroom, 
went flying down. It was remarkable. God likes me very much. Don't ever do that, you know, or whatever it may be. But there was a miracle in there. But that time that I took my hands, if you will, off the house, and I stood on that ladder, I was fully relying that that ladder would hold me up. I was fully dependent. That's the word that is used there, to put all of your weight upon something. And back in 14, it says that uh, King Asa went out, and he put his full weight upon the Lord. He relied on him, he cried out to him. Here, same word is used, and it says he put his full dependence on the king of Syria. And so then notice what Hanani does. He comes and he reminds Asa of past victories. An example from his past of how God worked in his life and gave him victory. I like to think of it in this way in my life, that God has me enrolled in a seminary. I'm a pastor, people will say, did you go to, where'd you go to seminary? They'll say, where did you go to seminary? Where'd you go to school to become a pastor? And I'll say, well, I never went to seminary. I never went to school to study to do this sort of thing. And then they'll look at me, and I know in their mind they're saying something to the effect of, oh, you must not be a real pastor then, or that church thing you got going over there. I don't think that's a real church or something like that is the looks that I get from people here. But I think that God has us in a seminary of life, all of us whether you're a pastor or you're not, that God kind of pushes us through a schooling of sorts. And he's training us. You know, if you were going to go to a college and you were going to study for a particular occupation, you would go out onto that campus and you would meet with an advisor, you'd meet with a registrar or something like that, and you would say to them, this is the occupation that I would like. And they would reply to you and they would say, okay, these are the courses that you are going to need to take because they know that there are certain courses which will prepare you for that particular occupation. So if you were going to be a school teacher, they would come and they would say, you know what, among all the other many courses, you need a course in public speaking. Sign up for this 101. And you would sign up for it. If you were going to be a nurse, you'd be sitting in a human anatomy class or a bunch of them. If you were going to be an accountant, you'd have all sorts of math classes. They know the courses you need to prepare you for the job that you're going to do. And I think that the Lord does the exact same things in our lives. I believe he has a job, if you will, for each one of us. The scripture says in Ephesians, it speaks of this idea that the, the purpose of what's going on right here, right now, is for the pastors and the teachers and so on to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so we go out of here, if you will, as missionaries. And shoom, 200 of us take off and go in all sorts of directions to accomplish the work of God for that next particular week. And so God has something for each of us to be doing, a job for each of us to accomplish. And just like a college registrar, or just like the advisor that you would meet with, he knows what courses that you and I will need to take in order to be prepared for that occupation. And that's why I think it's important that we take time to jot down, or at least, very least, if not journal, at least to stop and think about the lessons that the Lord has been teaching us over the years, once a year or so, I like to do this in my life, is to kind of pull back and stop and sort of summarize what my year has been and what kind of theme or message that God has been teaching me. A little while back, it was the theme of hope, just after 9-11, actually. Right at, and then we had hope, my daughter. That's where the name came from. But it was this idea of, you know, in life's miseries that there is hope beyond the grave. And that just kept resonating. And God was using everything, it seemed, in my life to teach me that. Just a few years ago, it was the idea of grace. Just how good God is and how merciful and kind and gracious. And he pours out 
his goodness and abundance into our lives and how he wants me to do that in the lives of other people, even when they don't deserve it. So God is teaching us, and he takes us through, if you will, these seminary courses. And so if you don't do it, maybe you might want to start journaling in your life or at least taking some time to sit and to consider and think of the lessons that God has taught you in preparation for when you're going to need those lessons down the line. Now, Hanani, the prophet, is reminding Asa in the verse we just read, essentially saying, don't you remember when you took that course back in freshman year? That lesson, the lesson was that God wants to show himself strong on behalf of men and women and young people who are willing to trust him. Asa, Hanani says, this was a perfect opportunity for God to show himself strong. And unfortunately, you weren't willing to trust him in this thing. God wants to show himself strong on behalf of those, as the verse says, whose heart is perfect toward him. And God is always, has always chosen to work in this way through people that are willing to step out in faith. Now, quite honestly, I don't think that this is the best strategy, but it's God's strategy. And he delights to work through people. So you look in the scriptures, and we could trace our way through And you look at a guy like Noah. I need to save, if you will, humanity. And I need to do it through a man that is willing. Noah, would you build for me an ark? Would you build for me this football-sized field boat? And I'm going to bring something called rain. Never happened. Rain never occurred before. But I'm going to open up the heavens, and rain is going to come forth, and the earth is going to flood. And I need you to preserve the animals, certainly, but a race of people, a family. And Noah, the scripture says he did it because he, God said so, and he believed God enough to act on that belief. You look a little bit later into the book of Esther, and you see this young woman, this fearful young woman, who believed this truth for such a time as this that God had placed her in the palace to preserve the Jewish people. And all she would have to do is to go unsummoned before the king and to present her request or her petition. Now, to show up before the king unsummoned, if he didn't want you there, could mean death. But she said to her uncle, she said, you know what? If I die, I die. And she went before the king because she believed God. You look a little bit later in the New Testament to Ananias, a fellow you may not be as familiar with, but Ananias was a believer uh, in the book of Acts that we read about. And he was there in that city in which the, uh, the rabbi Saul was coming in and he was killing Christians. And Rabbi Saul, as you recall, in Acts chapter 9, I believe it is, he encountered the risen Lord. He was knocked down off of his horse, and he was converted to the Christian faith. And he was brought into a city. His eyes were blinded there. And God spoke to this man, Ananias, and he said, I want you to go to the street that's called Straight, and I want you to find a guy there named Saul, and I want you to pray for him that his sight would be restored. And Ananias says, God, this guy's killing us. I'm not going to see that guy. I'll die. And the Lord said, no, he's a chosen vessel of mine. You go. And Ananias had the faith to believe God and act on that faith. And he went in and he prays for Anybody see the Bible that was on History Channel this last week? What a great scene that was where he goes in and he baptizes Saul there, Paul. And he says, the Lord has forgiven you. He calls him brother. That's the first thing he says, brother Saul. Where's that kind of 
where does that come from? It comes from a man that believes the Lord. And he acts on that belief. And again and again in the scripture, we see men and women who not only said they believed, but demonstrated that belief by their action. And God loves to show himself strong on behalf of such people. Those are the people we read about in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Those are the people it says this of, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I'd encourage you, if you haven't done so lately, read the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and let your faith be encouraged and blessed. But sometimes we read Hebrews chapter 11 and we think, well, yeah, that was 5,000 years ago. Of course Abraham, of course Moses, of course David, of course Sarah, of course all of these great people but not so much in this day. Well, then I want to recommend two other books. We had, I think, both of these books as resources of the month. Harvest by Tal Brook and Chuck Smith. Excellent book. Very encouraging to your faith to teach you to step out in faith. Victorious Christians, you should know. A book by Warren Wearsby. Men and women of faith who stepped out in their belief and accomplished great things for the Lord. Great examples of faith in a contemporary, this, they live the same life I live, I could be like that. Very encouraging, and I'd encourage you to consider. Now, the prophet Hanani continues, verse 9, in what might be the most well-known verse of the book. He says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God desires to work. He's chosen to work through us. And he's searching for those that are willing to trust him in such a way that they will act so he can accomplish big things through them. He's searching for middle school and high school students that can go into their schools in faith, live out that faith, and make an impact on their peers. He's searching for kids that are willing to be those people. He's searching for young men and women coming out of college and beyond that are willing to give their entire lives over the Lord. Not necessarily working in full-time ministry, but Lord, you have my life. You can take me wherever you want to take me, accomplish whatever you want to accomplish through me, but may your name be glorified, and may you be lifted up. I will do the things you call me to do. He's searching for churches where the Holy Spirit might move because the people of the church trust him. So that when the people of the church are in a diner and the opportunity is to present the message of forgiveness and grace, they do it when the opportunity is to invite a person, when the opportunity is to go and love someone as Christ would love a person, the people of that church do that. That is the church. That is a church that impacts a community. That is a church that God is working through. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth in search of those whose heart is perfect toward him. He wants to work through those types of people. And he does. May we be those people. Now the verse concludes and it says those whose heart is king james says perfect or modern versions it says those whose heart is blameless now you might read that and you might hear the word blameless and you might think well that's not me that rules me out i'm not blameless well it's important to note even though the king james uses the word perfect blameless does not mean perfect it doesn't even mean without blame but rather, the translation should be full or whole or complete. So he's in search of those whose heart is full, whole, or complete. 
The idea is of being undivided. And so if I were to say to God, God, I trust you, but, well, my heart is divided. It doesn't fully trust. It's not wholly trusting that the Lord can work. It's a divided heart. And as I said, God wants to work through us. But our lack of trust can have the effect of limiting him, or at least limiting what he can do through us. And so I'll have to move on to someone else. So I would encourage you, homework this week, get out your notepads, homework this week, thank you. I see some of you uh, jotting it down, others looking away. If I don't look him in the eye, he won't know that I received the assignment. Read Hebrews 11. And then as you're reading, sometimes it's a verse, sometimes it's three verses or whatever, uh, about a particular person, stop and sort of ask yourself, how does this apply to my life? And how can I live out my faith like that guy lived out his faith in a similar circumstance? If you really want to go far, look up Damian Kyle from Calvary Chapel Modesto. He did a study on Hebrews chapter 11, which is remarkable. Unbelievable. Take your breath away. I gave it to the leaders here a few years back on CD. See if you can find that. It's a wonderful study, and you will be very, very encouraged. Anyway, Hebrews 11, great chapter. whole purpose of the chapter is found in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12 in which it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, such great examples, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. God's not requiring that you and I be without sin in order to work through us. But he is asking us to fully lean upon him in full dependence. And it's in that posture of dependence that God is able to show himself strong on our behalf. Now, Hannah and I continue, second half of verse 9, he says to Asa, he says, you've done foolishly in this. You relied on him in the past. You had a great opportunity to rely on him in the present, but you didn't. And he says, you've done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Now, it's important to note that this event in Asa's life does not make him a quote-unquote wicked king, as it says of some of the other kings. Remember, in the summary verse of Asa's life, chapter 14, 2, it says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Good people, and I know the scripture, there are none that are good, no, not one, all of us have sinned, I understand that, but in the perspective of people that are seeking to be godly, good people will call them, good people blow it from time to time. Amen? Just a few of you. Good. Godly people, people that want to follow God, sometimes do that which they shouldn't. Godly people sometimes wake up with a bad attitude, and they're cranky throughout the day, and they treat people poorly, and so on. Sometimes we have a bad day. Sometimes we have a series of bad days that kind of string themselves together. And Asa here was having one of those bad days. And after being confronted about that sin, he had a choice to make about that sin. A choice as to how he could respond. He could have responded and said, you know, you're right. You're right. I messed up. I can't believe I did it. I knew that lesson. I thought I knew it, and I drifted. God, forgive me. Or, the other option is, he could defend his actions. Oh, leave me alone. 36 years I've served the Lord. Now you're going to come because I did this thing. Why don't you just get out? 
you know, he could defend his actions. He could harden his heart to God's conviction. And unfortunately, that's the option Asa chose. Look at verse 10. It says, Then Asa was angry with the seer, that's the prophet, and he put him in stocks in prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. Rather than repent of his sin, Asa instead seeks to silence the voice of conviction. You ever done that? You ever been convicted so strongly about a sin, about a behavior, about an attitude in your life? But rather than saying, you know what, you're right, I give up, rather than that, you seek to silence that conviction? Well, I do it. I do it frequently until I finally kind of woken to my senses here. But sometimes a conviction comes and I can turn on the TV and that will distract me enough to silence the conviction. Sometimes a conviction comes and I'll argue with myself or the person that brought the conviction. You don't understand. You're wrong. What right do you have to come? Judge not, brother, lest you be judged. All sorts of things that we pull out of our pocket to kind of deal with not having to deal with the conviction. So here you have this example of now he puts the man in jail that comes to to present the, the voice of the Lord. But be careful of this. Because notice what happens. He hardens himself against the voice of the Lord, as exemplified here by the way he treats the the seer. And it has the effect of affecting every other relationship that he goes through. So notice it says, when Asa was angry with the seer, he put him in prison, and Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the other people at the same time. It has an effect on every other relationship. A hardened heart in one area becomes a hardened heart in many, many areas. And Asa is drifting from the Lord. There's an exhortation that is found in the book of Hebrews. And I think it's valuable for us this morning. It's Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. This comes from the book of Psalms. It's quoted here in the book of Hebrews. It's speaking of the Jewish people as they're coming out of slavery in Egypt and they're wandering to the promised land. And the scripture says that God's conviction came upon them, but they hardened their heart. And they said, no, I don't want to hear that. We've said this before as we were studying the book of Joshua, that the promised land that the the Jews were making their way to, if you want to look at it metaphorically, it's a picture of the victorious life that we can enjoy in Christ. Not up and down with our sin, but that walk that we can have with Him that is sweet and pleasant and unhindered. And it says here, because of the hardness of their hearts, that they could not enter into that rest. And for 40 years they wandered around until that generation died off, until a new one came. And it was that new one that entered into the rest. All because today they heard the voice of the Lord and they hardened their hearts. They refused to listen. And they never entered into the rest that God would have them to enter in. And the same truth is for us as well. When the Spirit of God convicts you, when your conscience is telling you to go a different direction, to repent of a particular sin, respond. The more you put it off, the more you harden your heart, the more at risk you are to not entering into the rest that God has for you. Cultivate a soft heart. Quick confessions. 
When I was a kid, we would go to confession, I don't know, once every six weeks or so. At the school that I went to, they'd bring us before lunch. Maybe the teacher was having a particularly bad day. Everyone to confession, you know? And so we all had to go to confession on that particular day and miss lunch, recess. We ate, but we couldn't go to recess. It was punishment for us. I found in my life six weeks was too long. I need quicker periods of confession. Some of you, maybe at the end of every day, just before bed, you, you kind of put your head down on the pillow and you, you run through the list of the, the ways in which you blew it and you said, God, would you forgive me? That's good. It's better than six weeks. But I found in my life, I need to do it moment by moment. When I mess up, when I sense the conviction of the Spirit, is just in, I don't have to pull over the car or anything, just sort of in the quietness of things, say, Lord, would you cleanse me? Restore my fellowship with you. Forgive me. If need be, tell the person I'm sorry for the way that I just did this and that. Quick confession. Cultivate a soft heart. Hear God's voice and respond. Well, we move on to the final verses, verse 11. It says, Now the acts of Asa from first to last, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought help from the physicians. And Asa slept with his father, he died, dying in the 41st year of his reign. And they buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. Sadly, until the day of his death, Asa maintained a hardened heart. Now, it talks about that he didn't call the physicians or excuse me, he did call the physicians, he didn't seek the Lord. This isn't supposed to be designed to say that we shouldn't go to doctors and things like that. Some Christians interpret it this way, that it's sin if we call the doctors, just pray, you know, this sort of thing. I think we pray and we go to the doctors. The, the point of this particular purpose, uh, the purpose of this particular verse is to point out this idea that he refused to go to the Lord. Even as the disease was getting worse and worse and worse in his feet, whatever that means, and how that kills a person, I have no idea. But even as that was getting worse and worse and worse, he refused to stop and say, you know what? God, would you help me? You can even see he's relying, remember that word, upon these doctors here. He failed. He was a good man, I should say, and yet he allowed his heart to harden to the conviction of God. We learned some lessons so far. We've looked at three kings of Judah. We looked at Rehoboam. And what we've said of Rehoboam is that he refused to set his heart to seek the Lord. We looked at King Abijah. And what we learned about him is theologically he knew it all. But he failed to allow the word to get from his head down into his heart. And now the lesson that we learned from Asa is to persevere with diligence and to take heed to the warnings of God and to not harden our hearts to God's conviction in our lives. Valuable lesson, I think. I'd encourage you, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, maybe it's just starting, praise the Lord. Maybe you've been in the Lord for a long, long time, praise the Lord. That's great. But it doesn't matter how long you've been in the Lord. It doesn't matter how many wonderful successes you've had in the past, victories you had in the past. What matters is what you're doing with the Lord this day. And if the Lord is convicting you of areas of sin, the Lord has brought warnings into your life. Heed those warnings. Confess that sin. Keep a soft heart with the Lord. And that's how you'll remain uh, in the place of victory with the Lord.
Amen? Lesson from Asa. Let's go before him. Father, thank you for the lesson of Asa. Lord, I, I, I appreciate it being written for us because we see a man, Lord, uh, who is a godly man, was good and right in, that, in the eyes of the Lord, and yet had his failings. And Lord, uh, that's our desire. We want to be godly people. We want to be right before you. And yet we know we fall, we make mistakes. And so Lord, would uh, you use Asa's life and the lessons that we've seen this morning to teach us. Father, to uh, really just bring a heavy conviction upon our hearts that you need to repent. Lord, we love the truth of that verse that if we confess our sins that you're faithful and just, you'll forgive us our sins and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, rather than running from you, hiding from you, defending our sin, Lord, would you teach us to come to you lay ourselves bare before you that you might cleanse us. And we can get back up and start walking again. We pray in Jesus' name.